Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me is Lori Schumann, the National Director for Climate Risk Reduction and Resilience at Enterprise Community Partners. Lori will talk about affordable housing and what climate change will mean for housing availability. There's already a crisis in affordable housing, or lack of it, and climate change will only make the problem worse. We'll also learn about FEMA's new housing policy for disaster victims, and Lori talks about Resilience 21, a volunteer group of resilience practitioners in diverse communities from across the United States and affiliated nations. Upcoming episodes, Dr. Elizabeth Matuzzi from the Federal Reserve Bank joins the podcast and we'll discuss some recent research she's done on community development and climate resilience. Crystal Skillman, an award-winning playwright, comes on to talk climate communication and a new climate play she's written that is being performed in London and coming soon to New York City. I'll also have an episode with congressional staff to talk about a new bipartisan bill that will create a national adaptation plan and create the position of chief resilience officer. Great stuff on the way. Okay, let's join Lori Schumann and see the challenges of providing affordable housing in the age of climate change. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. Today, we have an exciting episode. Joining me is Lori Schumann. Lori is the National Director for Climate Risk Reduction and Resilience at Enterprise Community Partners. Welcome to the show, Lori. Hey, great to be here, Doug. Thanks. Looking forward to this conversation. We're going to cover a lot of ground in it, but let's get people grounded on who you are. What is Enterprise Community Partners? Great question. Enterprise Community Partners has been around for about 45 years. We're a leader in affordable housing, providing communities with affordable, safe, and healthy housing. We actually started in Baltimore. Our founder, Jim Rouse, was an urban planner and a visionary who believed that communities should be built with equity and diversity. So our organization was started as a nonprofit to help achieve those goals and build affordable housing where there needed to be more affordable housing. And over the years, we have evolved into an organization that spans capital, policy. We own and operate 14,000 units of affordable housing in the Mid-Atlantic. We're sort of a one-stop shop for all things affordable housing. You're based in New York City, and I just keep getting in my head that your organization is a New York City kind of thing, but you are national, right? You'll work in different communities all over the place? We're national. We have 11 offices across the country. In most of the high-cost cities, we've got an office. We started in Columbia, Baltimore, but have grown to basically deal with the increasing needs across the country around affordable housing and low and moderate income communities. And it's funny because in my role working to reduce climate risk for our partners, I am focused on multi-hazards across the country. So really the storms never stop in my work at Enterprise because we're dealing with all the perils. And indeed, this is getting worse and worse. So Enterprise is role in this space has grown and evolved as well. We started really working in the climate and risk reduction space after Katrina when we opened up an office in New Orleans. And out of that experience, we built one of the most interesting and cutting edge affordable housing developments in Louisiana called Furber Lafitte, which is really state-of-the-art leading edge development, which incorporates all the values that the founder, Jim Rouse, really wanted to see come to life. So I'm also happy to report that our organization recognizes that there is an incredible affordable housing need across the country and that the affordable housing 
needs are aggravated by the climate risks that are confronting so many of the communities we support. So it's really a top pillar for enterprise, the issues around climate risk and resiliency. And thousands of folks are working to make the dream of Jim Rouse possible. So you, you'd mentioned Katrina there, and I, I do want to get that detail that I think a lot of organizations and a lot of sectors are trying to ramp up their adaptation efforts. And I think we are just at the beginning of that and we have a long way to go. And so your position, National Director for Climate Risk Reduction and Resilience, Community Partners has dedicated a position to that. They're funding that. So did that designation of your position come after Katrina right after or has it sort of been evolving? It has been an evolving journey, Doug. I came to Enterprise. I was in California for about a decade doing some pretty radical stuff with some partners at the state and local level. And I came back to New York City where I came from and decided I needed to be in the Four Seasons. And I was working in New York City. I had been brought back from California to run an organization called New York Sunworks, which is an interesting organization and nonprofit working to build cutting edge STEM educational facilities in schools in New York City and spent about two years at that organization. And then Sandy happened, Superstorm Sandy. And immediately all of us at New York City were woken to the fact that not only are we a set of islands, we are exposed to extreme climate risk. And what we saw unfold over the course of five days during Sandy, the initial hit was an absolutely moment of an of awakening and a moment of a fear, right? For New Yorkers, feeling fear and, and anxiety is sort of part of our daily life. But this was a moment of not feeling like we had control over anything. It was a moment of really giving ourselves over to the possibility of Mother Nature and, and what her wrath would ensue. And so what I found at that time was I really wanted to dedicate my professional life to helping our communities recover in New York City. And lo and behold, Enterprise was looking for someone to lead their Superstorm Sandy recovery program. And so I got connected with Enterprise. They hired me. And that's really where my journey at Enterprise began in those early days, working hand in hand with affordable housing organizations across New York City supporting the most vulnerable New Yorkers across the the city to help recover their homes, many of which were lost. I recall working with partners that had incredible stories, an organization, services for the underserved that housed, had a facility that housed 95 formerly homeless individuals. This facility was destroyed during Superstorm Sandy, and these individuals were vetted out to hotels across the city And what incurred as a result of that storm was just an unbelievable moment. I would say, Doug, it was as significant in many respects as 9-11 was. Wow. You have a fantastic history there that brought you and obviously storms have driven the, your career evolution. And that's fascinating. And let's jump into affordable housing. Like I talk a lot about how housing decisions are made and how climate change are going to impact it, but drilling down to actual affordable housing. And so you've you've talked a little bit about this, but let's give people a little bit more context. So what exactly is resilient affordable housing in the context of climate change? It's not typically something that we think about. It's a question that I've been wrestling with for well over the past decade and a half. What is housing that can withstand the risks and the, the volatile impacts of changing climate? 
I would say that my work in this even goes back further than my professional work. I always joke, I used to want to be a weather woman when I was six years old. So I've been following weather patterns for a long time, and I've been following the impacts that weather has on communities probably my whole life. I never became a weather woman, but I feel sometimes like I am a bit of a weather woman in this role. You know, housing is an important, it's an anchor in our communities. Housing is essentially an assembly of parts that together make a functional whole. And I'm a, I call myself a building scientist by trade because a lot of what I do is try to figure out how do we keep those building parts functioning, integrated, and able to provide us with the purpose of housing, which is shelter. When any of those parts fall apart, the assembly doesn't function, it fails. And so what comes up for me first when I think about resilient housing is how do we maintain operability for these assemblies throughout a variety of risks and a variety of perils. So wind impacts housing in a very different way than flooding does. And fire impacts housing in a very different way than seismic risk does. And they're all bad. Some are worse than others. Some perils will completely destroy your home and there is nothing to repair. Some perils will partly destroy your home. Flooding can significantly impact a home, but with some technique and some strategies, you can clean it up and get back online. With fire, most of the time, it's a lost cause. With earthquakes, most of the time, it's a lost cause. So we look at these degrees of what we're preparing for and identify what are the thresholds of support we need at what point and what is the viability and practicality of those solutions. Over the years, I have become a fan of looking at what local communities do to understand what they can do to make sure that their buildings are adapted. And many communities have the answer, right? We don't have to go to a lot of textbooks to understand what a community might do to help provide generation of power in an outage. You go to many communities, rural communities, and they can tell you exactly how to do it. I think the question of defining what resilient housing means is really coming with the elements that we want to talk about that will help us understand what that definition looks like. At this point in history, a lot of agencies are asking, well, how do we create resiliency codes? How do we create resiliency templates so that we can make sure that housing is built in a certain way? And and I point to looking at the elements, looking at what are the basic components of a resilient home and working at the local level to define how that shows up. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all in this space. I do think that there's elements and checks that we need to check off to make sure that that home is able to withstand perils. And There's a consistent theme across all perils, across all houses, across this nation, and across the world. Number one, we need power. We need a way to power up this home should the grid go down, should there be a distribution problem, Should there be an outage? We need power. Number two, we need a source of water, potable water. We need a way to manage our water in, and we need to manage, number three, our water out. We need a waste treatment system, a waste management plan for that building so that it can be sustainable and resilient. Number four, we need to make sure that the occupants of that home know how to operate that home. This is something that I feel very strongly about, that the folks inside that home need to know how to maintain that home and the systems inside of it. Just like if your server were to come off, you need to figure out how to get your internet back on. I believe that inhabitants of housing should know how to fix their plumbing and other things that may fail. And then number five, that the home has to be able to 
take advantage of the local conditions and the local environmental benefits that are evident in every single community, in every single block across the globe. That is wind, sight, energy from the sun. So I truly believe that these five elements should be part and parcel of all of our resiliency plans for buildings. Now, it is worth mentioning that code is in place for safety and health of a building. And so that is part and parcel of all of our resiliency plans and definitions of building, that it should always be assumed that these buildings need to be safe and healthy. And I unfortunately, that's not the case with a lot of housing across this nation. And the lower income household you get, the worse it gets. That was some great context setting. And I think about affordable housing in the United States right now. We have, you know, the housing prices have just gone through the roof. And so it's only creating more problems for affordable housing. And I think a lot of communities out there, they have activists who are advocating on behalf of affordable housing. But I, I wonder if there's tension between maybe groups like yours where climate change now is this new thing that you need to factor into affordable housing, where maybe you have people that have been long-term affordable housing advocates are just like, this This isn't relevant. We need to build some homes for people. And if new codes are that much more difficult or it makes things more expensive, is there any of that tension out there in regards to different affordable housing advocates? Absolutely, Doug. The tension always exists between getting buildings built, getting homes, affordable homes built quickly and as affordably as possible for the developer and adding in these levels of due diligence, which I think before we saw green emerge and efficiency emerge, they were always considered bells and whistles, right? We're not talking about bells and whistles here. We're talking about keeping the asset whole in and as it confronts these risks. I mean, when I talk about climate risk, I'm talking about the material risks that face our industry. This is no longer a nice to have. This is part and parcel of how we build. It should be as natural as building to code. What we need to do and what I'm working on closely with our partners across enterprises, trying to weave in the best practices around building sustainably and with resiliency into our deals, into the development we do, helping our partners, coaching our partners through this work. We know what the strategies are. What right now we need to incentivize these strategies from for getting incorporated into our buildings. And I'll point out something, Doug, and this is something that I think is really going to move our market. I'm not the only one, and my colleagues are not the only ones saying we need to think about risk. The insurance industry is manifesting incredible levels of volatility around this question. We see rising insurance premiums because of the disaster risks and exposure of these insurance insurance companies. We see Insurance companies being asked by localities, you know, such as we see in California, to purchase more reinsurance to ensure the worst case scenario in a community. So insurance industry is feeling this in a big way. And we need to make sure that we're working to reduce risk so that we can reduce premiums, we can keep insurers in our markets, and we can keep doing business. Okay. So I imagine like if you're doing national work that you you have urban issues around affordable housing, but then suburban and then rural areas, and maybe even those rural areas, can you even have those conversations where you're like, okay, we're looking at making the affordable housing that you might be building from scratch, or you're building back climate resilient, and people just might look like you're from another planet that you want to focus on these issues. What are some experiences of bringing that conversation to areas that might not be as open to doing that? 
I'll tell you a story about some work we were doing in Baton Rouge. There was a significant rain event a couple of years back, dropped about something like eight or nine inches over Baton Rouge in, in a couple hours. And when we started talking with some of the leadership in Baton Rouge about the rebuilding of some of the homes, and we suggested, you know, we could think about setting up some stretch codes or stretch standards so that when you're rebuilding the homes, you can build it with incorporation of the resiliency measures in place. And the big question that came up was, you know, we got to get these homes back. We've got to get people back in their homes as quickly as possible. We cannot delay. And that's the reality we face in this industry is we can't delay getting homes built. We got to be running along with the train, right? As the train is moving and we've got to be delivering water and anything, other resources to the occupants of that train as it's moving along. I mean, think about a marathon, you know, where the folks on the side are standing with water. I mean, that's how nimble we've got to be with our resiliency information if we're going to get anything done. Because the name of the game is, at the end of the day, we need people to be sheltered. But we're playing a long game, right? We're not just playing this to do a, a short sprint. We're playing the long game. We want our nation to be housed in a way that will be sustainable and long-term resilience. So that's sort of what we're what I'm offering right now. Well, it seems like the best bet to get the uptake of climate resilient, affordable housing is that if you're leaving it to the local county commission to sort of make the best codes, I just, that's just not going to happen. But if you're going to get, I guess, federal funding, let's say even after a storm event, I don't know if be it FEMA or other agencies that are requiring this, to me, that's probably your best shot to actually getting some of these more rural areas up to code to, I guess, those standards or because. That's right. Okay. Because. That's right. We've got a moment right now where the federal agencies are aligned in a way that I I don't think that they've ever been aligned before around the need to reduce risk and climate and agencies are putting in adaptation plans, as you had cited a couple of weeks ago with Jesse, money is getting committed through the Infrastructure Act and then new funding that'll come in place. We've got agencies creating adaptation plans. HUD has just nominated a terrific lead for resiliency. So we've got all the pieces coming together But we've got to define how we can create these standards that can be quickly deployed and deployable to the builders, the contractors, the marketplace. So that, you know, tomorrow resiliency is as understood as energy star and efficiency, right? That's when we've changed the marketplace. I'm curious your opinion on this. And it's I think it's a huge blind spot. And it was made brought to my attention through one of my podcasts is I had Dr. Andrew Rumbach from Texas A&M on and he had brought up the fact that, you know, mobile homes are like a major source of affordable housing in so much of this country, but they sort of fall through a lot of the cracks when it comes to codes, because sometimes you can move these things and but so many people rely on it. And this is like a major source of affordable homes for people. And yet it's very hard to kind of create that integrated approach with these homes. How how do you guys talk about mobile homes? Mobile homes are a big concern. The, The state of repair for a lot of mobile homes and the way mobile homes are built. It's a big topic that, you know, we, I enterprise has looked at very closely for years. Let me explain a little bit about what we're thinking with regard to mobile homes. A lot of communities, particularly rural and tribal communities that have experienced disaster, often what they'll get to rehouse the community and and provide shelter is FEMA 
trailers or manufactured homes that are deployed for temporary purposes, well, they become permanent very quickly because there's just no other alternative. And over the years, these homes become battered and bruised by the winds, by flooding, by other issues. They were never meant or built to withstand those conditions. And so the way we can deal with mobile homes is to think about how we redesign these homes. And it has to start with the purchaser of the homes. And in this case, it's the federal government. FEMA is one of the largest procurers of mobile homes for disaster in the country. So it starts with changing the specifications now so that when those homes are deployed later, they are able to stand up to the test of the local community conditions. Because the recipients of these homes can't make those adjustments. We're talking about very significant structural adjustments, but that these homes have to be shifted. There is an opportunity, though, to change the conditions and the specs of these housing units. The other thing I was going to offer is that there is an alternative to a lot of mobile units. There are pilots that are going on all over the country, some of which you may be familiar with, Doug. It's called the Mississippi Cottages or the Katrina Homes. It's got created after Hurricane Katrina by some architects in the Gulf, they created these sort of mini units of housing that were used then to house communities, and they still are in use. There's another project called Rapido that Enterprise invested in where we worked with a firm to basically create a uh, expandable housing unit. So you start with a core, and over the years, as the family or occupants grow, it becomes bigger. It's called a temporary to permanent home. So I would offer that any home we put out, whether it's a mobile home or a temp to perm or a micro unit, needs to be considered that it could be a permanent home one day. I don't think we should ever do anything temporarily. Most of the time, these units become permanent. Let's talk about some examples and I guess explain your role, but I want to talk about a book that you contributed to or primary author. Please just give me that background. And it's called Strategies for Multifamily Building Resilience. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? This was a project that was initiated after I came to Enterprise. I spent a good five months over the Christmas break. I always say it's a good thing I don't celebrate Christmas because I I would be in trouble with my family. I spent time working with engineers all across New York. We hired four teams of engineers to go out to 200 buildings across the region that were in a state of recovery and repair. And we invested time into walking through those buildings, basement to roof, to try to figure out how to fix those buildings and help them build resilience into their recovery. And so we went through multifamily homes, public housing, walk-ups, tenements, homes for, for older adults, every type of multifamily building topology you can imagine. We went in and tried to understand what the problems were, what could be done to improve them. And then we applied some of the FEMA guidance in terms of the improvements. A lot of the FEMA guidance at the time said you just elevate the buildings, right? That's the best case scenario. But we said, you know, we can't really elevate these buildings. These are not elevatable. We have residents that have to stay in place in these buildings. They have nowhere to go. And these buildings have centralized heating and cooling, and they've got particularities to the buildings that are specific to multifamily. So out of that experience, we thought, you know, we're going to need a guide that's going to help us understand what we mean by full mitigation and partial mitigation. And I was in a discussion up in Boston 
with some colleagues, Alex Wilson from the Resiliency Design Institute, uh, Mark, Mark Ginsburg, Jim Newman from Linnaean Solutions. And we, we said, let's come together and create a book to talk about what we mean by multifamily resilience. And that's where the snowball started. We then convened a, close to 100 experts in multifamily housing across the nation and sat down in New York City Hall and over a day determined the path of what we believed would be multifamily resiliency. And we worked together over upwards of two years. I pulled in my colleague, Tom Sahajan, and we created this book, which we never really understood the time, the significance of the book, but we definitely knew it filled a gap. And the gap that it filled was to protect the most vulnerable households in our nation, the renters, the Section 8 users, the public housing residents, to protect their homes and their buildings from the ravages of climate, this was a guide that would help us understand how to have that conversation. And it's been one of the most popular books you know, that we put out, that enterprises put out, and it keeps evolving. We then were called up by FEMA to use that book to inform a FEMA multifamily guide. So right now, in today's time, where low and moderate income communities are at the front and center of national policy, at a time where our president is talking about making sure that all of our federal funding benefits 40% LMI communities. This book has a very special place in that effort. And certainly as we think about renters and buildings, I mean, we look at what happened in the Bronx two weeks ago with a fire or in Philadelphia or on and on and on, even in Miami Beach, we think about how we approach multifamily housing. It is a very particular and unique housing stock that we must attend to and treat with a very specific approach. And that's what that book does. I will have a link to the book. And, you know, we can't go page by page, but there is broken up into these sections. And I just want to mention them. And, you know, the first and correct me if I'm not really describing right, but like kind of the first chapter talks about protection and then the second chapter adaptation and then backup and then community, which I want to talk a little bit about. I thought that was really interesting. And then putting it all together. So you guys did a really fabulous job really holding people's hands as they can got to go through this. And it gets very technical. It's like do this around the building and do this in the room. And so... Very useful information. And I guess those chapters came out after multiple conversations. Those chapters were, we, we had, you know, as you can imagine, with 100 folks involved, ongoing curation of what this work was, what we meant by strategies. I worked closely with a good partner, Samantha Yost, who helped us curate this and make sure that we segmented these strategies in a way that was accessible. I mean, because the, the key here is, accessibility to the public. There's a lot of technical guidance out there in the world, but it's not accessible to the public. People don't, you know, their their eyes sort of cloud up when they read it. You know, a lot of manuals on technical specifications and they're, you know, great door stoppers, but it's hard to put them into use. And so one of the contributions I think this book and others have made is it makes the information palatable and readable and you can sift through it. You don't have to read it in order, it can be a, a reference book. These five categories are very specific to housing resiliency. I offer that these are the ways we can frame housing resilience in general. Mitigation, right? Your bread and butter protection of the building to make sure it can stand up against the risk. And that's for almost any peril. Adaptation. This is about evolving that building so it can grow and evolve with the local conditions and changing environment. 
This is where our heat strategies come in. This is where our local resources come in, as I mentioned before. Backup. This is what is on everyone's mind when we think about a natural disaster. And I mentioned before, electricity and water. These are the critical elements that make a building habitable. So having those backup systems in place. And I will say, Doug, about the backup and about these technical strategies, what I bring to this too is I've built and constructed buildings asking these questions myself. So I've gone through the process of trying to figure out what is the right generator? What kind of fuel do I use? What is my critical load? Those are the questions we need to ask. Then we talk about community. The unique aspect of a multifamily house is that you often have hundreds of people living under one roof. Imagine that. I live in a 300-unit building in Brooklyn, New York. We have one boiler. We have one electric circuit board. If those two things go out, thousands of people are out of their homes. So what I find amazing about multifamily housing is it's such an efficient building stock. What an efficient thing. You have all of these folks living in one building and they share resources and it's collectivized scenario. So let's keep that supported, right? Especially for folks with limited income. And then finally, how to put it together. How do you pay for this stuff? I mean, because at the end of the day, if you can't pay for it, it's not going to happen. So I feel very strongly that we have to be very clear about how we pay for it and get it uh, permitted. But all of this work, and I think all the work I do, frankly, comes out of my personal experience going through the pain of pulling permits for an off-grid building or trying to you know, build a never-before-built wastewater treatment system. And I wish I had someone <laughs> saying to me, Lori, here's the best practice. What I found interesting and adaptation is just this new emerging thing. And a lot of people think they've been doing it for a while, but really just people are kind of creating things from scratch. And what I would encourage, I got my start in the natural resource sector and wildlife conservation. And there's always, you know, adaptation plans and such. And I would recommend, you know, people in those sectors go and look at your your book here and just kind of think differently about what your adaptation plan will be. And I want to ask you a little bit more about this community section because Social resilience is getting a lot more attention in the adaptation space, which is a fantastic thing. It's like, we got to care about each other. We got to create cohesive communities or we're really not going to respond well. We're not going to adapt well. And so I liked in the book, something as simple as a community garden, but even like a weekly bingo game where people in that same building are coming together, learning who each other are, and then actually communicating with each other because if a storm event comes through, whatever, the lack of communication truly is a you know a terrible adaptation strategy. And so I think other sectors that are using adaptation plans could benefit from what you guys have done here. Just it's, it's a different way of thinking about how they do their adaptation. So just kudos to you guys. Thank you, Doug. I want to mention, you know, one of the the hallmark rules of thumb for me when we talk about emergency management is that. And I'll say something a little bit controversial, but it's true. In an urban environment, the first responder is not really necessarily the police or the fire. The first responder could be your neighbor next door. And if you're stuck in the Rockaways and there's no, and the bridges are down and the electricity is down and the trains aren't running, you're kind of on your own. So you've got to be able to be working with your neighbors and help each other out. And I mean, the truth of the matter is 
a lot of those community strategies emerged from our work with a lot of public housing communities across New Jersey, where we were told over and over again by the residents, look, we didn't get help until, you know, a day in or, you know, our families have been living here for generations and we understand who each other are and the needs much better than anyone else. So why don't we help each other out? And the more you know your neighbor, the better off you are in terms of that kind of crisis. So it's a fundamental awareness around the importance of community in a world and in an environment where isolation is on the rise, depression is on the rise, compartmentalization, thanks to the internet and everything else happening is on the rise. So revisiting this, particularly in the climate adaptation space is critical. So you said this was in a, in a, you update this book, you're always kind of looking to improve it. So here's a couple of feedback opportunities for you. Just FYI, you don't have to agree. I'm writing it down. Okay. All right. I hope, and maybe I I didn't read it that closely, but when you're dealing with people, even in these buildings and, you know, be it the landlords or whatever, but creating climate awareness, a lot of times people are doing this work and like, well, we don't even have to mention climate change, but why, why bother? I'm like, no, you need to do it at any chance you have when you're engaging with the community, people living in these buildings, integrate climate education everywhere all the time. And then the second thing is that you guys use the term natural disasters a lot. And as you are probably aware, that's becoming sort of a big no-no term. And I agree with the people who say that you shouldn't put those two words together. It, it, it creates the idea that somehow nature was out of control and this disaster happens. Like, no, most of our disasters are because of bad decision-making by people. So I don't know if you agree with that, but I see that the, that term and I don't know if you guys even thought about that. I agree with you. And I will I will note that because we are digitizing the book right now, actually. So this is a good time for feedback. Okay, you're you're um, you're right. Uh, natural disasters are probably not the best term. We use them at the time because of the the school of thought that's saying you know climate change is not real, it's not happening. So we wanted to appeal to everyone, but the reality is. We're building housing in environments that probably should be left in some kind of environmental trust, right? A lot of the wildland interface development happening out in California and Colorado, this needs to be inspected and assessed by localities that are providing those permits. Humans are creating the disasters because humans are showing up in areas they shouldn't be living in. Yeah. So, and it's just- And there's a school, you know, a lot of people who are in the disaster space that they're really, they feel quite strongly. I've had them on the podcast and they've convinced me and I, I, I'm sure I kind of just out top of my head, I'll say natural, but I'm trying to pivot more toward storm events or, you know, sort of these disaster events or things like that. And it's just, it's good because it, it assumes that humans weren't mostly responsible for what just happened there. So they are, and uh, we just need to make that it's an educational thing. So. But Doug, I would say this, though. I would push back to some folks that would say it's not a natural disaster. I would offer that, you know, there are many stories and case studies of communities that have been relocated to areas in the nation that are vulnerable to risk. I am thinking about communities specifically public housing communities in New York City that initially were living in areas in the center of Manhattan, right? We think about West Side Story. West Side Story back in the day featured a largely Puerto Rican community in the mid-60s in Manhattan, in a community that was fairly protected from flooding. It's a bedrock community. And these households, thousands of people, were taken out of mid-Manhattan when Lincoln Center was built 
and relocated to public housing on the edge of the city in the Rockaways, which is a barrier island. This was an example of how localities and jurisdictions at the time primarily managed by affluent white managers, right, moved communities from one place to the other. And this has happened all over the country. And so we now have tribes living in areas that are really at risk. We've got public housing put into areas that are floodable. I mean, so this is one of the legacies that we in this nation have to deal with. And when we look at the infrastructure funding coming in, I hope that we will be able to fund some of the structures and, and infrastructure to help undo this harm. Yeah, I don't know know what we're disagreeing about. <laughs> Just discriminatory, historical discriminatory policies led to people being relocated that were they're at more at risk. And just ultimately that because of those discriminatory, am I not reading that right? Yeah, basically. Okay. <laughs> we're on the same page. Okay. It's all good. Yeah, all are. right. I want to pivot a little bit here too. And you and I were chatting. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I have to get your opinion because we when we chatted in advance that what we one of the things that we wanted to talk about and you you had a strong opinion. So we, we have to dig into it. And I, I'm talking about managed retreat. And I think you have a strong opinion. It's this whole emerging right now. It's this an acad- academic sort of discipline. And I, you know, I've been to conferences. I've focused on it in the podcast. I like that this whole kind of discipline has emerged for my own reasons. But you just think it's, you know, just a mental exercise. And please correct me if I'm how I kind of described our original conversation. But tell me what, what your thoughts about managed retreat. I think that the idea of managed retreat that communities will be facing such risk that they will have be forced to leave their community. And managed retreat is about getting ahead of that and trying to to forecast when a community is going to be pushed out and have to find a new area to live that's safe. I think that the managed retreat conversation, however, feels way more academic to me than I would like it to be. I think that the a lot of folks and colleagues I speak with about managed retreat see the managed retreat as the end game. I rarely hear about the question of where folks are going to go to and who is going to receive communities. I don't know if I agree with this idea of a seamless sort of uber managed process as well. Most of the time we've seen across the country and the world that folks only leave their homes when faced with an unbearable and insurmountable disaster. Think about Katrina and all of the households that left New Orleans went to Houston. You know, a lot of those households were dealing with flooding. They were dealing with mold. They were dealing with risks over the years and they got accustomed to it and you adapt and you are resilient, but it takes such an enormous event to push you out of your home, particularly when you have nowhere to go. That's to me what I think is the future of a lot of our communities. And we can talk about managed retreat, but we communities that folks will retreat to. So I think that this conversation is a bit, it's a bit half-sided. It's a bit, it's not a full and complete sentence. Hmm. To me, the completed sentence is, yes, communities will be having to leave their region because of flooding. And we need to think about a way of managing their retreat. And this is where we're going to focus our efforts on ensuring that communities have somewhere to go. If that does not happen, these communities and households will literally be displaced and it will be unmanaged and it will lead to homelessness and it will lead to chaos. 
Well, what I like about it, and I, I agree that the idea that it would just be sort of this orderly thing that that's just that's not how sort of communities work. But what I like, it, it's creating a narrative around the idea of you, you're ultimately going to have to abandon some areas. And right now, people can't even visualize that or they don't want to think about that. So if it gives some sort of storyboard contours to like some really big changes that are happening, and a lot of social scientists are coming into the managed retreat space, which I think is great. And I like to use the term, and it's probably completely inaccurate, but I think of a place like Miami, where you're really not going to build a seawall, the, the, the idea of entropy is going to happen as opposed to like, yeah. manage retreat, and we're going to move people out in orderly fashion. So it's going to be like, no, the real estate's going to implode in this area. And then the real, I mean, the retail will implode over there. And just over a bit of time, it's just going to be a degraded thing that it just it leaks out. And then, you know, 50 years, you snap your fingers and it's like, wow, Miami's just a shell bunch of super fun <laughs> sites and it uh, sorry Miami I'm always picking on Miami in this sorry um, Miami yeah <laughs> but you see what I'm saying but I like the idea that managed retreat is where a lot of intelligent people coming together and they're trying to create a narrative around okay well we're not going to be able to control all these different things but look if we've got a pot of money to move this group of people and that you did that after Sandy you know there's money there to help relocate people that's a very targeted managed retreat and so I do think there's value in just thinking out loud about these really kind of almost sci-fi ways of looking at the future. I agree. It's a good, I'm glad the conversation has started, but I'd like the sentence to be completed. It's hard. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's hard to, to say, okay, communities are going to have to leave Miami beach because it's going to end up like liquefying into the ocean. And we're, you know, we're going to have to figure out a way to manage this retreat over the years. I mean, there's so many variables here as well. You know, you've got homeowners with lots of property and insurance and all of that comes into play. My question for the communities I serve, low-income communities primarily, is where are you going to relocate folks? Where do refugees in this nation that come into this nation find home? It's not easy. I would offer that let's complete the sentence and talk about where it makes sense to target improvements and infrastructure and housing development so that there's a choice and an alternative for folks. I spent a lot of time in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, and there was a community in Puerto Rico called Doabaja. And this is a community where literally houses are sitting on the convergence of a river and an ocean. And so this question of not reinvesting in the community to manage the retreat out was something that was evident. And a real conversation in the government and in circles across Puerto Rico. And a lot of community members basically said, when, where am I going to move to? You know, it's one thing to say to retreat out of that location, but there's not a lot of affordable housing out there. It's hard to transfer a Section 8 voucher outside of your community. So I, I offer, let's have the conversation about managed retreat, but let's finish the sentence. They, you know, they do that management retreat conference at Columbia. I think they're trying to do it every two years. I don't know if that's going to be the pattern, but they should invite you to come on and say, you know, you guys are all crazy. I mean, you're not going to say that, but it's just- They a, don't a, want me on it. <laughs> no, they should just shake things up because I think there's this sort of a momentum to it. And again, I, I support the X. I'm not necessarily in your boat, but at the same time, I see what you're saying. So I, I think that's very interesting. I want to pivot again. We're going to be pivoting a lot with you. Tell me about Resilience 21. Oh, my first love- <laughs> no, uh, many love. I've had many loves before, Doug. But this is a this is an effort that started. It's a coalition of resiliency practitioners that was initiated at the outset of the Biden 
administration. So, and the, the evening before he was elected, I was on the, a, a phone call with my good friend, Maurice Aho, who's now the chief resiliency officer of Washington state. And we were talking about the need to share out our opinions and our perspective on how to build resiliency in the nation. She had been a, the CRO of LA and Houston at the time. And we thought, you know, let's help out the new administration. And in our early days of the honeymoon, we thought, let's figure out how to really step forward here. We've had four years of sheer horror, and now let's go into a place where we can be productive. And so we teamed up with our colleague, Stuart Tocosi, who has been working in resiliency for decades, leading North America Resiliency um, Network. And we called all of our friends and colleagues and said, we're coming together to try to create some guidance for the administration. And over the course of several weeks, we all huddled up, and this is dozens of folks from across the country, to provide our best in class, our guidance to the administration. And so that grew into what we now have as a network of a couple thousand folks from across the country working together to kind of share stories, share insights. We have a leadership council. It's a rather non, it's a loose network, meaning we don't have a lot of formality. We come together to advise as we see fit. We are providing advice to several components of the administration and and really providing guidance from what we know that works and what doesn't work. We're excited that there's a bill that just came out, bipartisan bill, to push forward adaptation of resiliency. And we think that's a win for Resiliency 21. The upshot though with Resiliency 21 is we're focused on practitioners providing practitioner guidance. We are not academics. We're not electeds. We're not political. We're not funders. We are purely practitioners that are working night and day to build resiliency into our communities. And that's what differentiates us. You know, that's what we we believe is important is to have that practitioner lens. And I believe as a practitioner myself, that it's important to have practitioners at the table at every conversation It would be akin to having, and I'm going to say this because I feel strongly about this, it would be akin to having a contractor or builder at the design table when you're building a building. I believe we should always have contractors and builders at the table with every decision we make around a building. Same thing with policy and programs. You should have someone who builds it at the table so you can actually get through some of the challenges and, and hope to give you a jump start. So we're builders, we're practitioners, and we're providing as much guidance as we can. And it's it's a really it's an amazing effort, but it takes it it takes a lot of love and and camaraderie among those involved. So if like people in the product practitioner space, people can anybody can join, right? You're looking to grow. We're looking to grow again. We offer folks just come to the website. We have a LinkedIn group, and that's the way you can plug in. We've got town halls that we put forward. We featured the White House several times and others, leaders from across the country, amazing leaders that from all walks of life, walks of community, rural, urban, Latino, you name it. We've got a lot of good representation. But, you know, we want to have a dialogue and a forum that is not hindered by the sort of formalities that a formal organization might bring. So it's a community of practice, you might say. And I think it's important because I think that as we get into a place where we have to deploy funding, right, we're we're facing an era of incredible investment, we've got to know how to get that funding out to the communities as quickly as possible. And that's not easy. You know, that, that is not easy to deploy funding in an equitable way. 
and to track it and to achieve your vision. So in order to do that, we've got to have people at the table who know how to do that. We've got to have communities at the table. If you're going to build resilient housing and standards in a community, you've got to have those community members at that table to decide with you. I'm a strong proponent of that. In fact, the next book that we created called Keep Safe, a guide for island housing, was all informed by community. With the Resilience 21, this is, I think, a fantastic thing. And I encourage people to kind of learn about it just so, you know, this doesn't mean too much, but I mean, I hadn't even heard of it and probably until just a couple months ago. And so I don't know what the kind of communication you guys are doing or even my guests coming on and dropping like, and this is more commentary on how I feel like the adaptation sector is still not very cohesive. You know what I mean? It's just, oh, these people are over there kind of doing their thing and those people and I just I try to use the podcast to create a, a lot more cohesiveness in the space, and so you guys could start your own podcast. You guys should, you know, you'd have enough stories to get, keep you going endlessly. But it just, it, I think the word needs to get out there, and I, it'd be a chance for you guys to maybe help encourage some of that cohesiveness. So, just some feedback. That's a great idea. I, I appreciate that, Doug, and, and I'll take that back to the crew. I think that's great. We should do it. It's a it's a great name for a podcast, Resilience Twenty One, or whatever you kind of come up with. So, and can we work we, with you on that? You'll be our mentor. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then we can kind of go at each other and just kind of destroy each. No, I'm kidding. No, I, I've been <laughs> I've just been, I've encouraged many podcasts, even in the adaptation space. So I think it would be great. I encourage podcasts as much as I can, and I'm shocked at how few podcasts there are for a lot of groups out there, organizations, they just can't get their act together, come up with it. It's a really good tool to communicate to people. So one other thing about that bill, I'm probably going to talk more about that bill in an upcoming episode, but so there's that one of the thing, it's not a lot of money, but they're going to designate a chief resilience officer. And I think there's just a ways of just coordinating resilience. I, my feedback is it should be chief adaptation officer, but I, you know, I seem to be losing that battle when it comes to resilience and adaptation. But what do you feel about this position? Because I mean, that's great. It's a recognition of how important it is, but then it's just like, all right, new administration, <laughs> different party, see ya. So it's like, how do you bake these things in into the government? So, you know, that's tricky. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll tell you something. One of the things that I find really fascinating about the housing conversation is that's the hardware, like building the brick and mortar is the hardware, which lasts, which is enduring. The software is like a lot of stuff that can't be measured and tracked. It's important, but I feel strongly that we should be building the facilities to make this work and continue past this administration beyond. And and what that means is investing in brick and mortar and make sure that brick and mortar is, is able to be adaptive and resilient. I guess one encouraging thing is that it's Congress that's it's it's a bill because, you know, sort of like the, the National Climate Assessment, it's, you know, the, the Trump administration had to do it because it was congressionally mandated. And so as opposed to it being an executive action saying we're going to create this chief resilience officer, which that, you know, they wipe that away instantly. It's just like, well, this is congressionally mandated. There's some money. So even though they might not put a lot of enthusiasm in it, it's still it's, it's a better approach, I think, to try to bake it in. So that that's good if they can do it. What I'm excited about is it's bipartisan. You know, I'm, we're getting jaded out here, though. It's bipartisan now. But then when it comes to actual votes, like, all right, not a single vote, you know, it's like, come on. So we'll see. We'll see. I remember health care bills back in the 90s. And so oh God. <laughs> I don't need to go down that rabbit hole. A lot of bipartisan talk and then the vote. And where are you guys? Where's so, my whiskey? Right. All right, just a couple more questions for you, Lori. And I we didn't really get to dig into this, but that's okay because I think the other stuff was so much more important. But just like you, you do have a lot of 
to say about FEMA. And maybe we just speak really quickly. FEMA made a really big decision, and, and it, it, we covered it somewhat, but what, what is that when it comes to housing? They made a big policy decision recently, even in the last couple of weeks, I think. Well, FEMA is really stepping up in a big way around this question of equity, pushing forward equity and incorporating equity in all of the agency's programs and policies. And one of the outcomes to that was to consider housing disaster victims in housing as opposed to hotels. What a brilliant move that is, because we're recognizing that a lot of victims displaced from disaster that don't have a home are very vulnerable. And they and moving a person to a hotel is not actually helping. Sometimes it even harms a person. And moving them into a stable housing unit for a certain amount of time is actually a much more helpful support for that person, for the person's household, and for the community. And we saw this in New York after COVID, you know, instead of a city moving folks into shelters, they, they've started to move folks into housing units. You know, hotels are just a Band-Aid. You know, having a real affordable housing unit is, is the goal. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of sort of policy, micro policy decisions that go into like sort of long-term tenants and stuff. And I mean, that was very encouraging. You're absolutely right. But boy, it just opens up a lot of complexity, but it was needed. So yeah, I think that just happened in the last couple of weeks. It sort of made that decision. So I mean, Enterprise has actually, we had a program come home in YC where we worked with landlords to move homeless, formerly homeless folks from shelter to affordable housing. And it's been hard to achieve our goal, but we've achieved it because we have good relationships with the landlords and we provide support and wraparound support too. I mean, I, I started out my career running emergency feeding and shelter programs for the Catholic charities in New York City in the early 2000s. And I will say this, and this has always stuck with me. When a person loses their home, it changes a man. It changes a person. When you lose your home, you have nowhere to go. And I mean, the goal is to get people away from the shelters and keep them out of the shelters as much as you can. And sometimes they need support to do that. And that's where, you know, what we're going to see coming forward with FEMA is providing that wraparound support to keep them in their home, to keep them in a housing unit. Okay. So we got two very different questions from what we've covered is just to wrap this conversation up. And I got a little help on this question here and I'm curious what you want or your answer. Okay. So if let's say 50 years from now, because you're going to be alive 50 years from now, where would you want to live in America and what sort of house would you want to be living in? Okay. I've, I've been dreaming about this for a while and I... <laughs> Here's what I'd like to do. I want to live in an off-grid, a house that can connect to the grid and connect off the grid so that we're as independent and nimble as possible in a situation where I'm able to take advantage of all the local resources to, to survive and habitate. Now, I'm a Libra. So that also means there's another vision I have, which is to live in a high-rise multifamily building with a big wraparound porch and a super efficient system in the building. So I don't know if there's one path for me. I think that there's many paths. Location, um, location though. Where where would you be? Well, you know, I'm I'm a fan of the desert. Oh, okay. But, you know, the desert now is getting a lot bigger. So, you know, where that desert ends up, I don't know where that's going to be, but I I uh I think that's a great question and I think that where I'd like to live is a place that has local resources to support whatever vision I, uh, I I want to achieve. But, you know, are we going to live in a flood zone? Are we going to live in an earthquake zone, a fire zone? It feels like that's encroaching on all of the 
all over the place. So it's hard to say what's going to be safe in 50 years, but I think the desert's probably a good place to land. There's some known factors there. I'm way ahead of you, Tucson, right in the Sonoran Desert. So You are. <laughs> you are. I'm moving out there. It's it's. I love it here. And I think everyone defines local resources differently. I could never be a prepper living off the grid because I got to have you know a good Korean restaurant, a nice Thai restaurant, and you know, the, those prepper people they're just not getting access to that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so in, in fifty years, come back. We'll we'll have another chat. We'll have a fireside, and, I'll, and I'll, we'll we'll compare notes. It's true, but darn it, something like Amazon will deliver Thai food from like 300 <laughs> miles away to your door hot and you, you can just get away with that. So you don't have to be part of any community, but we'll cross that bridge. L- listen, we may, we may end up on Mars in the space station. Who knows? Oh yeah, Mars sounds lovely. What a good use of our resources. <laughs> um, all right, Lori, last question. I ask every one of my guests, if you could recommend one person to come on this podcast, who would it be? Oh boy, that's a good question. I think one person come onto this podcast, who would it be? I would say you should call up Josh Salswick, who is doing some amazing things inside of the government and outside of the government. He's sort of like, I I think of him as a real brain trust for resiliency and all things adaptation. Does he work for the government? Tell him I sent you. No, he he just joined Deloitte. Oh, okay. Yeah. Government people are hard to get on. He's one, but can I also mention something? I think it'd be great if you called up Cecilia Martinez and asked her to be on the podcast too. She was at the CEQ, she was at CEQ for about a year leading their EJ work. And I think you should call her up and, and try to get her on the podcast and talk about her experience there. All right. I'll, I'll try to get more information. And I just mental note is that you are not alone when I say one guest everyone can't help themselves, but offer up multiple guests. You are not alone in that. So, but it's good. <laughs> I, it's mainly for my listeners that get to hear about people in the space. So if they hear from more people. That's fine. But I just think it's funny. I'm like, is she going to just say one? Is she it's hard. Say, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> so many good people doing this work. And as it's you're giving your, you're giving your first example, you automatically like all these other names start flooding into your head. So I get it. So, okay, Lori, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm so glad, you know, you're in my orbit now and I'm hopefully we can stay in touch and talk about these things. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks a lot, Doug. Great conversation. I'm going to get my whiskey now. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Lori for coming on the show. What a treat to connect with Lori and hearing about the important work they're doing. I think if we get affordable housing and climate change right, a lot of communities are going to benefit. Obviously, if you take climate change out of the issue, housing always seems to be an intractable problem. But creative groups like Enterprise Community Partners are working with a diverse set of stakeholders to bring some new thinking into this space. Definitely check out their work. Lori has written or co-written multiple books to help building owners and landowners plan for climate change. If you're responsible for writing an adaptation plan, no matter what the sector, her work will inform what you're doing. Links are in my show notes. Okay, some final housekeeping. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring a whole podcast episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location to record for these sponsored podcasts, which allows a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the work you're doing. I've done these with various groups like University of Pennsylvania at Wharton, NRDC, UCLA, Harvard University, World Wildlife Fund, MIT, it's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. Okay, and most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life. 
much more so than a white paper or conference presentation many groups work into their existing communication strategies. Previous sponsors have used the podcast to communicate with their own members, board members, and even funders. My previous sponsors have found the process actually pretty fun since there's a lot of creativity involved. Putting a podcast together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting a paper together, or so in my estimation. Please reach out and let's have a conversation around this so you can learn more. And if you're new to this podcast and you're catching up on all things adaptation, definitely take a look in the podcast library. We have covered a lot of ground that will catch you up on many of the most important adaptation issues, managed retreat, climate reparations, climate impacts on the LGBT community, national security and climate change, indigenous issues, legal implications associated with adaptation, and nature-based solutions to resilience. Oh, and then we are just scratching the surface with those topics. Definitely take a look in the archive. Also, if you are interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. Folks, I speak to a lot of groups and you'll enjoy it. I've been doing some keynote presentations. They are a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences doing adaptation policy. You can contact me at americadaps.org. And my regular listeners, I know you're out there. Podcasts rely on word of mouth. Please take a moment and plug America Daps on your favorite social media feeds. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn is actually a really good one. Put a plug for the podcast. It is greatly appreciated or even share within your office office if you haven't already. On that note, I love hearing from you. Just say hi, or if you have an idea for a guest, let me know. I love hearing from you, and it's a highlight of my week because you guys are doing some really cool things, and you are all over the world, and I get to meet you once you find the podcast. So definitely reach out. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.